0: Luke chapter 9, as we continue through the Gospel of Luke together. This is the first time, I think, in the history of Emmanuel, I've been out of the pulpit for two weeks in a row, so I'm raring to go this morning. So just let you let you know, um, it's good to be back. It was good to have Stephen Atkinson last week preach for us from Christian Witness to Israel as well. Well, I love to listen to podcasts. You could probably say I'm a podcast junkie. I've got all different types of podcasts in my playlist that I use when I work out, when I drive in the car, when I do the dishes, when I mow the lawn, all different types of podcasts. I've got my podcast on theology. I've got my podcast on pastoral ministry. I've got my podcast on political commentary. I've got my podcast on sports, and I've got my Podcasts on other types of things. Podcasts that you listen to. I want you to think about something this morning. How much time did you spend this week listening to something? Either online, on a podcast, on TV, on YouTube. We listen to things all the time, we listen to music. We listen to talking heads on the news. We listen to politicians. We listen to athletes. We listen to movie stars. We listen to social media influencers of pop culture. On average, how much time a day do you spend just listening to stuff? Whether good, whether bad. What I'm saying is that on any given day, a lot of things fill our ears. We listen to a lot of things. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, some of you are on TikTok, some of you Snapchat, cable news, podcasts, radio, video games, you name it, you and I are listening to stuff all day long. And sometimes it goes in one ear and out the other, all the things that we listen to. Now, why do I draw your attention to what do you listen to? What are you listening to? Let me ask you another question. How much time and energy do you spend listening to Jesus in his word? How much time do you spend listening to Jesus in the word of God? Now, we need to recap because I've been gone for a few weeks. I actually was here last week but didn't preach. We've been in the Gospel of Luke. I want us to go back and I want us to to see where we're at to get our bearings straight. So if you will join with me, go back to chapter 9, verse 20. Peter makes his confession. Remember, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah of God. You are the Christ. It's the confession. And then Jesus talks about his mission. We know his identity. He is the Christ. Okay, what's his mission? Verse 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus must suffer on the cross and rise again. Okay, so we know who the identity of Jesus is. He's the Christ. His mission is to die on the cross and rise again. Okay, he turns to his disciples and says, okay, here's what you need to do in response to that. You need to take up your cross and follow me. Verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Jesus says you need to repent of all self-sufficiency, of all self-righteousness. You need to take up your cross daily and follow me. You need to lose your life in order to find your life. Now, we need to pay very careful attention to how Luke organizes his material. Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Jesus tells that his mission is to suffer and die. And then Jesus tells his disciples, follow me. And right on the heels of this, we have, how Luke organizes it, the transfiguration. It's no accident that the transfiguration comes right on the heels of what we've just seen. The identity of Christ, the mission of Christ, and the call to follow Christ. So let's read together this glorious account in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings... Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. There's a lot going on in this passage of Scripture, but we can't miss the The command. We can't miss the the major issue in this passage of Scripture. And it's there in verse 35 where the voice of the Father from heaven says, Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus. So here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. It can kind of be summed up in this truth. Followers of Christ must continually listen to Christ. If you're going to be a follower of Christ... You need to listen to Christ. Now, this is right on the heels of Jesus calling us to follow him and take up our cross. Now, at first glance, you may say, okay, that makes a lot of sense, Sean. I need to listen to Jesus. Yeah, I I know that. I've grown up in church. I need to listen to Jesus. I need to listen to the word of God. But let me ask you a question, why? Why is it so important for you to listen to Jesus? Why do you need to hear what he has to say? Let's not become so familiar with Jesus that we fail to see what this passage of Scripture is really calling us to do this morning. So as we look at the transfiguration, we see three main components, three main sections, three main aspects, and they all really point us to answer the question, why do we need to listen to Jesus? Why does the voice of the Father say, listen to Him? Okay, Here's the first, and it may not make a lot of sense to you, but here's the the first portion. We First of all, in this passage of Scripture, see the glory of the new Exodus. Now you're like, wait a minute, Pastor Sean, I thought we were in the New Testament. Isn't Exodus the second book in the Bible in the Old Testament? Why are you talking about the Exodus? Okay, I see Moses in this passage of Scripture. I see Elijah. But where are you getting Exodus? We need to pay very careful attention to how Luke uses the original language and also how he draws us to Exodus images in the Old Testament. Luke is very careful in how he words this account. Notice how he starts there in verse 28, about eight days. You may say, eight days, that's interesting. Why eight days? Well, eight shows up a lot in the Bible. You remember Hebrew boys, when they were first born, they had to be circumcised on the eighth day. A leper who was cleansed or who was healed had to wait eight days before he could go back and worship in the temple. The most important symbolism of the the number eight comes really in the book of Ezekiel at the end when the temple is restored. Chapter 40. So Luke, by using the number eight, is already drawing our attention to the Old Testament. He's already drawing our attention to some images about the Old Testament. He's drawing us back to temple or tabernacle imagery. So everything in the transfiguration is going to point us back to predominantly Exodus. Now we see Jesus' inner circle. Obviously there were the twelve at that time, but then he took three in his inner circle He spent more time in discipleship with those three men than he did with the other, Peter, James, and John. He takes these three men with him up to the mountain. Now, where is the mountain? Well, there's some scholarly debate as to where it is, but most scholars believe it's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was where Matthew and Mark record Peter making his confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's in the northern region of Caesarea Philippi. It's a very nice snow capped mountain. It's very lush and beautiful. That's probably where it occurred, the Mount of Transfiguration. And so, what happens up here on the mountain? Verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Okay? Jesus begins to shine in resplendent glory and power and radiating this majesty right before them. Matthew says it this way, Matthew 17, 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Matthew uses the word transfigured. It's the Greek word where we get the word metamorphosis. Jesus underwent a metamorphosis right before them of dazzling glory. Mark records it this way. Mark chapter 9, verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Clorox couldn't even get it that white. Dazzling white. But notice the language that Luke uses. I'm going to help you this morning because as you delve into the original language, you see how Luke draws us to the Old Testament. Luke says, there in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered. The appearance. Where else does that word appearance show up in the Old Testament? It shows up when God is giving Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Exodus 26:30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan. Key word there. For it that you were shown on the mountain. The plan. Now, during the time of Jesus, they spoke Aramaic, they read in Hebrew, but a lot of people spoke Greek. So by the time of Jesus, they translated the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, they translated it into Greek. Okay? It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when you translate that Old Testament passage in Hebrew to Greek, the word there in Exodus 26.30 for the plan is the same Greek word here that Luke uses for the appearance. So what's Luke doing? Luke is purposely using imagery from Exodus, the tabernacle, to show us that Jesus here is the tabernacle. He's the glory of the Lord. In his transfiguration, he is shining before them. And we'll get get more into this here in just a moment. Now, there's two men talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Now, I've thought a lot about that this week. Wouldn't you have loved to have like an audio recording of what Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about? Talk about some deep theological discussions. I mean, and the Greek says they continued talking, they were talking for a long time. Now, you asked the question why Moses, why Elijah, why these two dudes show up with Jesus on the mountain? Well, number one, Moses, you you understand. Moses was the primary leader of Israel. He's the one that had the showdown with Pharaoh. He's the one that led the nation through the Exodus. He's the one that gave them the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And so Moses here represents the law. Literally, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the law. Okay, so Moses represents, he's symbolic of the, the law. Elijah was the first of the school of prophets that did all these miracles. He raised the dead. He, he shut the, uh, uh, the sky from raining. He saw the Lord rain down fire on the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. And so Elijah represents the prophets. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. The law and the prophets. Now, oftentimes, those two words together, the law and the prophets, were used as shorthand to encapsulate the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets. Jesus even references this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Moses or Elijah. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when Jesus is standing there being radiating in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah next to him, it's a dramatic way of saying all the entirety of the Old Testament, it's now finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And not only Jesus, but he's the tabernacle. He's the dwelling place of God. He's the glory of God. He's radiating with these two men that represent the Old Testament. Now, we don't know what they said in that conversation. We'd love to hear what they talked about. But we do have one detail. Notice verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Guess what the Greek word is for departure. Some of you may have a footnote down there. It's the word exodus. Jesus is going to perform an exodus in Jerusalem. They're speaking of an exodus, a second and greater exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. Now, Moses would have every understanding of what Jesus was talking about here because he was there for the first exodus. Elijah would know too because he knew his Old Testament history. So what what would Jesus be doing in accomplishing this, quote-unquote, new exodus in Jerusalem? Well, what happened at the first exodus? The first exodus, if you remember... The Israelites were to take a lamb without spot or blemish. They were to kill the lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintels of their home so that when the angel of death passed over, they would not incur the wrath of God. They would be spared. That's the Exodus. Being saved by the blood of a pure spotless lamb from God's justice. What did Jesus just say he was about to do? Go back to verse 22. What does Jesus say he's about to do? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. In this new exodus, the ultimate pure spotless Lamb, Jesus, is going to have his blood shed on the cross, and all who trust in him will be spared God's justice. And it will happen in Jerusalem, not in Egypt. So Luke's working overtime here. He's working overtime with the language he uses, with all of the imagery here to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types of shadows. He's the glory of God. He's the tabernacle of God. He's the pure lamb of God. He's the sacrificial substitute. He's the one that's going to accomplish the the new exodus, the new suffering, the new blood being poured out. So the transfiguration, first of all, shows us that Jesus is the glory of all of those things in the Old Testament that could, could never quite get you there. Never quite gets you into a right relationship with God. It only was a type and shadow. It was only a picture. It was a sacrificial system that only went part way. But Jesus is here now, and he's the fulfillment of all of those. And he's got Moses and Elijah there as testimony to the fact that Christ is the new Passover lamb that's going to accomplish the new exodus in Jerusalem. Now, this is wonderful news. This is great news if you're a disciple. This is a definition of the ultimate mountaintop experience. Would you want to get off this mountain? You got Moses, you got Elijah, you got Jesus shining in all his brilliance, glory. Are you going to want to come down off this mountain? No, it's an ultimate mountaintop experience. Which leads us to our second aspect of this passage. Leave it up to good old Peter. Here's the second thing we see. We see a misplaced Eagerness to control Jesus. A misplaced eagerness to control Jesus. Now, Peter's been asleep. And he wakes up and he's blown away. Okay. When I was seven years old, our family went down to Glorieta, New Mexico. It's the big Christian camp down there. Uh, our youth had been down there before. It's this huge sanctuary. I was about seven years old. The sermon was boring, so I fell asleep. In my mom's lap don't do that, please um, at the end of the sermon, or at the end of the service, as I'm asleep, there's a 200-voice choir singing the Hallelujah chorus. I wake up, and I look at my mom and said, "Are we in heaven?" <laughs> "No, Sean, we're still in church. You just fell asleep. So I'm sure that's what Peter thought. He probably woke up from his nap "Are we in heaven? Where are we?" There's Jesus and all his brains. There's Moses and Elijah. Are we in heaven? Now, what does Peter want to do? Jesus, I got a great idea. It's great that we're up here, it's wonderful. Let's build three tents. Literally, in the original language, three tabernacles. Let's build three tabernacles here one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, what Peter does here, I don't think is necessarily sinful. I'm not going to, I'm not. Uh, I'm going to give Peter a break here, okay? I think it's misplaced ignorance, misplaced eagerness. He, he does two things that are they're kind of wrong, two things that are off in wanting to have these three tents. Here's the first thing. Peter wants to make Moses and Elijah equal to Jesus. Three equal tents. Moses is a good guy. Elijah's a good guy. Jesus is a good guy. Moses was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Moses was a great leader. Elijah is a great leader. Jesus is a great leader. All, all three equals. Here's the problem <laughs> Jesus won't have any equals. Jesus has no rivals. Jesus will not share his glory with anybody else. You see, these other two were just mere men that needed salvation, they're not equal to Jesus. Peter's basically saying this, Jesus, I love being up here so much. I want you to myself. I want to domesticate you. I want to control you. I want to localize you. I want to kind of control the situation here. I want to contain you. I want to domesticate you. This is none other than Peter's kind of eager attempt to control Jesus. And I don't fault him for that. If you were there too, you'd probably want to do the same thing. But let me ask you a question. I wonder if you at times inadvertently try to control Jesus. Jesus, I want you on my timetable. I want you to do things in my way. And if your plans get in the way of my plans, my plans should have first place. I don't want a Lord. I don't want someone that can control my life. I want someone that can get me out of hell for free, but other than that, Jesus, leave me alone and let me live my life. I want to control you. I wonder if we do that at times. The second thing that Peter does here, and I don't fault him for it, but it's, again, misplaced arrogance or ignorance, misplaced eagerness. The second thing is that he wants to see the full glory of Jesus before the appointed time. There's a great desire to want to see Jesus in all of his glory. I don't fault Peter for this one moment. Isn't that our greatest desire as believers? I mean, if your greatest desire as a believer is not to see Jesus face to face, I don't know what's wrong with you. That should be your greatest desire, to see Jesus face to face. But here's the point. It wasn't yet time. It wasn't yet time. This will happen when Jesus comes back on that final day. But that day hasn't happened yet. Peter needs to remember what Jesus had just told them. Peter, remember what I just told you. I must suffer first, then the resurrection. I'm going to be handed over to men to be tried. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to undergo suffering. That comes first, then the glory. You see, the pattern of Jesus is suffering, then glory. The pattern of the Christian life is we live by faith, not by sight. Suffering first, then glory. These things must happen. We must suffer. And you see, Peter wanted the glory without the suffering. Jesus, give me the glory now. I don't want to suffer. That's the danger of the word faith prosperity gospel. They promise you glory now. No suffering, no pain, no sickness. Get all of your glory now. Now, are we promised glory? Yes. Are we promised it now? No, we go through suffering. On that final day, we will see Jesus. But right now, we're called to live by faith, not by sight, in a world of suffering. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is is wow. When Jesus comes back, we'll see him as he is in all of his glory and all of his radiance and all of his beauty when he comes back on that white horse. And see, Peter wanted to contain that at that moment. Jesus, let's just leave you. I want the glory to last up here on this mountaintop. And Jesus says, no. It's going to end. This is a temporary thing just for you and your disciples to see. But I must suffer I must be persecuted. I need to go to the cross first and then resurrection. Peter, the Christian life is one of suffering first, then the glory. We'll see the glory, but we need to wait. Not yet. Not yet. Now let's look at the third aspect. The third thing we see here in verses 34 and 35 is we hear. Okay, now it comes to hearing. First it was seeing. Now it comes to hearing. We hear the approving voice of the Father. Now think about what the disciples have just seen. You wake up, and what do you see? Jesus in all of his brilliant glory, Moses and Elijah. And if that weren't terrifying enough, Notice what Luke describes happens next. And this is no mistake. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This language comes directly from the book of Exodus at the end in chapter 40 after the tabernacle's been built. Remember what happened at the very end? Exodus 40, 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We call this the Shekinah glory of God. The glory cloud. It came and it settled on the tabernacle. So much so that Moses couldn't even be in there. The cloud overpowered them. That's what's going on here on the top of the mountain. The glory cloud is coming and it's enveloping the disciples. The same thing happened hundreds of years later when the temple was built by Solomon. When the priest, 1 Kings 8, 10-11, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The cloud coming down upon Jesus means the glory of the Lord is filling the house of the Lord. So here's the question. Is the tabernacle a place or is the tabernacle a person? It's a person. Jesus is the full glory of God in person. So think about the disciples. You see Jesus radiating in all of his glory. You see Moses and Elijah. You're enveloped by the glory cloud. And then what's next would have scared the socks off of them. The audible voice of the Father coming from heaven. The Father speaks. Notice what it says. Verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The Father audibly speaks from heaven. And what does he say? He gives two truths about Jesus. The first truth, he says, is Jesus is the eternal begotten Son of God. This is my Son. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's always existed as the eternal Son. This is talking about the deity of Christ, that Jesus has always existed as the Son of God in eternity, never created, always existed. Remember when Jesus was praying in the garden right before He was arrested in John 17, 5. He's praying, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. At this moment, the disciples are getting a, a little glimpse at the glory that Jesus had with the Father before he came to earth and was born of a virgin. They're getting to see the full glory of the Son of God on display before he came and was born of a virgin. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is my son, the eternal son, the fullness of glory in bodily form, the eternal begotten son of God, truth number one. But truth number two, the father says he's the chosen one my chosen one literally in the religious language the one who has chosen whom god has chosen and continues to be chosen and will always be chosen he's the ultimate chosen one that's ultimately from the old testament as well when you go back to the book of isaiah we find out that the lord speaks through the prophet isaiah about his chosen one the servant The chosen servant who would come and suffer. All these things were written 700 years before Jesus was even born. These prophecies about the chosen one. Isaiah 42.1, Behold, my servant, whom I may uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The chosen servant in Isaiah is the one that God the Father has chosen to come in the flesh and be the suffering servant. Jesus is the chosen servant that's chosen to die on the cross. So what do we see about Jesus in the transfiguration? He's the eternal son of God who's fully divine. He's the chosen one who will suffer on the cross for our sins. He's the tabernacle. He's the fullness of God in flesh. And he's the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. Now, if this is absolutely true, if what they've just seen is absolutely true about who Jesus is, and it is, then what should be the response? Well, what does the Father say? Listen to him. Listen to Literally, in the original language, keep on continually, ongoingly, as a lifestyle, keep on listening to him. Never stop listening to him. Stay focused on him. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus speaks audibly from heaven and we need to kind of wait and tune our ears to make sure we listen to him? All of us here would love to have been at the Transfiguration. Who would not have wanted to be there to see that? But here's the thing. It only happened to three disciples, and it didn't last. It lasted for a short time, and then it came to an end. Peter, who was there, gives commentary on it in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Listen to what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born from him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on the holy mountain. What's Peter saying? We were there. We heard the voice. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw the transfiguration. We saw Jesus in his glory. We heard the voice. But notice what he says next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's, what's Peter saying? Don't miss this. He's saying, as great as it was for us three men to be on the mountain seeing Jesus, you have something greater. You have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You have the holy scriptures, which are permanent, which are lasting, which is how Jesus speaks to us today. The written word of God is a light shining in the darkness that has ultimate, sufficient, powerful authority. As great as the transfiguration was, Peter says, Listen, if I could choose between the transfiguration and the written word, I'm going to give you the written word. Because I was only there and three other guys were there and it didn't last that long. But I've got something more lasting. It's the written word. So here's the point. When we're supposed to listen to Jesus, how do we listen to him? Well, we listen to him through his written word. The prophetic word more fully convinced. The inspired, Holy Spirit inspired scriptures. Now, in the Word of God, you have both truths that you need to listen to and you have commands you need to listen to. Truths and commands. Now, we need to continually be listening to the truths because if you don't listen to the truths of the scripture, you can get discouraged, you can get defeated, you can become legalistic, you can become prideful. So let me just ask you a question. What truths? Are you listening to, in the Bible, do you listen to his promises? His promises that he's forgiving you and that you're accepted before a holy God. Do you, do you listen to the, the promises that are here? Do you listen to the comforts? The comforts that are here. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That he's always with you. Do you listen to the comforts? Do you listen to the invitations? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Do you listen to the truths, the promises, the comforts, the assurances? Listen to him. But there's also commands. Do you listen to the commands? When Jesus commands us to do things, do you listen with a predetermined attitude that I'm going to obey what he says? Without question or compromises, I'm going to listen. You're always listening to something. What voices are you listening to on a daily basis? Some can be good, some can be terrible. The point is, we fill our minds and our ears with so many things. Do you take time to stop and listen to Him? The Father said it from heaven. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Why? Well, Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the fullness of God. He's the eternal son of God. He's the chosen one that must suffer and in three days rise again. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the glory of God. Do you listen? Listen. Do you trust what he has to say to you? Do you long for that future day when you'll be with Moses and Elijah, not on a mountain, but with all the saints in heaven forever seeing the glory of Christ in all of his fullness? What Moses and Elijah and those three disciples got to see for just a short period of time, all of us will get to see when he comes back in his glory. Do you long for that? Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 13:12. For now, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully Right now, things are kind of fuzzy in a mirror. Like when you take a shower and it gets all fogged up and you have to "Eh," squeak it off and see. It's kind of what, what life is like now. On that final day, Paul says, we will see Jesus face to face in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. And let me just say this, the only way to know that you will be there to see him in his glory is if we talked about earlier during our children's catechism time you repent and you believe in jesus you will not see him face to face as your savior on that final day if you don't trust in jesus you'll see him as your judge so would you believe in jesus Would you see him as the eternal son of God, the chosen one, the servant, that lamb of God, the one that's going to accomplish the new exodus, the one that's going to die on the cross and rise again, shed his blood? Followers of Christ must continually listen to Christ. If you say you're a follower of Christ, do you listen to Christ? Let's all hear the voice of the Father that came from heaven. This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And you've heard the word preached. Now is your opportunity to ponder, to pray through, to think about what you've just heard, and to truly, in these moments together, listen to him. Would you spend some time in silent prayer this morning? Father in heaven, when we look at this passage of scripture and hear your voice and you tell us emphatically, you command us to listen to Jesus. As followers of Christ, we have no choice but to listen. But yet there are so many things that we listen to that are not the word of God. Maybe even good things. Would we take this coming week as an opportunity, maybe to slow down and and maybe not listen to podcasts as much, maybe not listen to talking heads, but spend time in your word, listening to what you have to say to us through your scriptures? And Lord, it's in those moments that we get comfort, it's in those moments that we get assurance. It's in those moments that we get peace that passes understanding. Lord, in a chaotic world, in a fearful world, in a world of anxiety, we we can try to get these answers in all these different places, but Lord, help us just to go back to your word. And Holy Spirit, we know that when we read the word, you minister to our hearts. So Holy Spirit, would you minister to our hearts? Would you give us ears to listen to the Son? We want to be good listeners. Help us to listen well this week to have our ears attuned to the things that you're going to say to us through your word. Lord, if there's anybody here today that has not trusted in Christ alone for salvation, would today be their day of salvation? Would today be the day they call upon the Lord to be saved? They repent of their sins and they trust in you alone, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you that one day we will see you as you are, face to face. In all of your glory and brilliance and majesty. We long for that day. We pray for that day. And as Paul tells us, Maranatha, Lord, please come. Come quickly. Until then, we live by faith, not by sight. will we trust in our great God. And it's in his name, in the name of Jesus, our only Savior, that we pray. Amen.